I'll be reading from Acts chapter 11 this morning, Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beast and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you shall be saved, you and all your household. And I began to speak, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you, God, for your word again. And, and Lord, I just um, pray for your ministry, that we would hear you and respond to you, be taught of you, and that you would be magnified, God, in each of our lives, that we would exalt you in our hearts, as well as with our words and through song that, God, that you would have your rightful place in each of us as we just come before you wanting to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, when Paul went to Cornelius, he had to have known he was going to be called to account for what he had done. Hugely controversial. And he's not, um, I said, Paul, when Peter... It's not, he's not ignorant. He knows that it was controversial. He knows that it was going to cause a lot of fallout and that their powers, the powers to be would want an explanation for why he did what he did. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you've had to give an account for yourself and going into the situation, you knew that it was going to be a hostile environment. The adrenaline starts pumping. You don't think very clearly. You can be emotional. You can be defensive. And all of those responses don't um, help you present your case. 
So one of the best things you can do in a hostile environment where you have to give account for yourself is to remain calm and to give an orderly sequence of what happened. It actually helps your case. And that's exactly what Peter does here. And it had to impress them because everybody knew Peter was a pretty impulsive guy. And he had a tendency to be emotional and to fly off the handle. And none of those things are true here. So his response is really more indicative of Christ in him than it is of Peter's personality coming through. Because this is not how Peter normally was. I remember being in a board meeting many years ago, um, seven, eight, nine men, something like that, and the meeting was, was interrupted by a phone call. And, um, and you have to understand that these were, were largely um, leadership of torchbearers within North America. Major Ian Thomas, the founder of torchbearers, was chairing the meeting, and the phone call was about me. And somebody felt like they needed to break up this meeting, knowing the meeting was going on, break up the meeting and inform Major Thomas of a problem that concerned me. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> and so now, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm the focus of attention. And I didn't even know this was coming. But I, I was on the spot, and this is one of those times where you start praying. Rapture, 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 right? <laughs> well, the rapture didn't take place. But God did give me grace, as only he can do. And so I was able to give, as Peter did, just an orderly, gentle, reasonable account. And everybody in the room was satisfied. And even years later, I heard somebody say how much that meant to them to see how I responded in a very awkward situation. Well... The reason it meant that much to him is because I was a friend who knows I don't always respond that way. It's supernatural. The ad adrenaline makes us do things we would never do otherwise. And Peter's a man just like us. And the adrenaline would have been there. You've got all these people who are mad at him and want to know why he did what he did. So it's remarkable that Peter stays calm, and gives an orderly account of everything that happened. He knew he had no reason to be apologetic. He'd done nothing wrong. But nonetheless, the environment is hostile. And they're, they're wanting his head. And that didn't happen. And by the end of this, as we read through the passage, they're going, amen. Peter did nothing wrong. God was at work here. And we give our amen to this. So I want to make just a few observations here as we look at this first paragraph in, in chapter 11. We already are familiar with the order of events here because he's just recounting what happened in chapter 10. He went to the uncircumcised. The, the accusation, verse 3, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them, which is an interesting accusation because he doesn't say you went to them and preached to them. How could you preach to those guys? But their problem was is that he associated with them as though there was no problem, no distinction. You ate with these men. You sat down in their homes and ate with them. What were you thinking? Because the law would say that at least their interpretation of the law is that the Gentiles were unclean. And by being in this kind of association, not only were you making yourself unclean, but you were ignoring 
the word of God. God has made a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and you are ignoring God's word. Now, I think personally that they were making, God had not made that kind of distinction between Jew and Gentile. God had chosen Israel, distinguished Israel, separated Israel, but it was not so that Israel would be isolated from the world, but that so that Israel would be a light to the world and reach the world. And so, yes, they were to be a pure people. They were to be a, a, a holy people unto God. But they were to be a people who were reaching the world. And they had lost that, that vision. And so now they would say, yeah, we'll preach to you so that you will become a Jew. Where are the Bibles that say that, that Gentiles were supposed to become Jews? But that's how they misunderstood their unique standing before the Lord. A unique people, the only nation on the planet that had been chosen out by God to be the bearers of the word of God. But it wasn't so that all the world would become Jews. So they misunderstood God's calling on them. And so Peter begins to explain. And as we already read through it, he recounts the vision that he had. So again... The point here of this vision is not just what the, the, the content of it, but the fact that Peter did not initiate this. He's, as it were, minding his own business. He's just in-house thinking about lunch. And while he's thinking about what lunch is going to be, he starts seeing a vision with all this stuff coming down and God saying, eat it. What was that about? The point is, Peter was not, he did not have an ambition to go to the Gentiles and eat with them. God was taking the initiative here. It began with God, not with Peter. And so then Peter emphasizes that God said to him, verse 9, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. We talked about that at length last Sunday, that God is saying to Peter, there is not a distinction between Jew and Gentile which would result in you not associating with them. Get rid of that thought. And so that prepared Peter to go and eat with them and to preach with them. And so then he says, this, verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. Once again, Peter's saying, I didn't plan this. I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I think it'd be a good idea to go witness to Gentiles and eat with them while I'm at it. This Spirit told me to do this. Okay. Well, that's not necessarily convincing because you can say the Spirit told you to do all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily make it right. These six men went with me. That was brilliant on Peter's part to take six other people as witnesses. And now those six men presumably are with Peter because he says these guys, so apparently they're with Peter as he's having to give an account for his actions. And then it says that Cornelius told us how the an angel said, send for Peter, and he will speak to you the words of salvation. And I began to speak, verse 15, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. I didn't ask the Holy Spirit to come upon them. I didn't lay hands on them. You see, when, with the Samaritans, Peter had to go and lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. That's not happening here. Peter's not laying hands on anybody. He's not even praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. He's just simply preaching. And there was nothing in the law that says that a Jew can't preach to a Gentile. Jonah did. 
So there's nothing in the law that says that Peter can't do what he's done up to this point. He's simply preaching. And in the middle of his sermon, the Spirit of God falls upon the listeners. And then Peter says, and I remembered the word of the Lord. And now this is the point, the PowerPoint. They had PowerPoints in those days. This is a powerful point. I remembered the word of the Lord. See, every experience ought to be able to be validated by the word of God. And that becomes the crux here for these people. This is going to come up again in Acts 15, where again, Peter's going to come back and remind them of this very situation. And, but again, once again in Acts 15, when there's another very critical conversation going on and the, and, the, and the atmosphere is hostile, once again, the deciding factor is not the experience itself, but that the experience can be validated by the Word of God. And Peter says, and I remember the Word of the Lord. And he's speaking about Jesus, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that John himself said. John and Matthew says, I baptize you with water, but coming after me is one greater than me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I think John's saying it's going to be one or the other. Either you are going to permit, you're going to place your faith in Jesus, and in doing so, permit him to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Or you will not place your faith in Jesus, and you will still get baptized by Jesus. Only it'll be with fire. Because those are the options. It's either you place your faith in Christ, and you come out of judgment into life, or you don't place your faith in Christ, and you will come into the judgment of God. So Peter says, I remember Jesus used to teach us this. Well, you don't have to go even back to the Gospels. Go back to Acts chapter 1. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now again, this was 10 years earlier. But nobody in this room listening to Peter has forgotten that experience. That they were not either praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. And so they went to Jerusalem, and they waited. And sure enough, just as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all those 120 people, believers in Christ, as they sat in that upper room. And now Peter's saying, same thing happened to these guys. I didn't do anything. I was there. I was preaching. But I didn't ask for the Holy Spirit to come on them. I didn't, pray, I didn't pray for this. I didn't lay hands on them. God did it. And what God did was absolutely in accord with his word. I can go to chapter and verse and tell you. I hope you see how significant that is. Because we all have all kinds of amazing religious experiences. But if you can't go to chapter and verse to support, to support that religious experience, you better hold it loosely it does not necessarily mean it was of God. Even though it was maybe very profound, very moving, very religious. If you can't go to chapter and verse and substantiate what that experience was, then don't let that experience become your authority. Make no mistake, we have one authority. 
and that is the Word of God. It is not experience. No matter how significant it was, no matter how life-changing it was, it is the Word of God which is our authority. And that's what becomes convincing for these men. Peter could say, chapter and verse, this is what Jesus said would happen. And it has happened. Verse 17, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Great question. Now I want to make one more point about verse 16 before I speak about verse 17. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't see personally anything in the New Testament that would strongly suggest that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now I understand the Greek preposition that's translated by can also be translated with or in. But John the Baptist and Jesus were very clear that Jesus would baptize the new believer with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's no, there's no clear New Testament teaching that says there is a ministry of the Holy Spirit by which he baptizes us. That's important, again, because we need to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he is not baptizing us. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit the moment you place your faith in Christ. So there's not a second baptism. There's only one baptism. And it happens for every person the moment he places his faith in Christ for salvation, for eternal life. At that moment, Jesus says, I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, the emphasis of baptism is identification, where he makes, God makes us one with himself through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can't get any more one than be indwelt. So now God is in us and we are in God because we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit by Christ. That's the emphasis here. It's very important to get this correct. There's not a second baptism and the Holy Spirit is baptizing no one. Jesus baptizes every new believer, no exception, with the Spirit the moment that person places their faith in Christ. And so at that moment, you got everything you would ever need to live the Christian life. Right? Because who is the Holy Spirit? God. And so if you get God when you place your faith in Christ, you will never need anything more than what you got the moment you placed your faith in Christ. You have been made complete. Because if you haven't been made complete, then God's not complete, and then God's not God. So now verse 17, who was I to stand in God's way? Now, great question. But again, keep in mind, he's not just appealing to the event, to the experience, but he's appealing to scripture. He can say this event, this experience is a fulfillment of scripture. Therefore, who am I to stand in the way of what God is doing? Okay. Sometimes it is just undeniable that God is at work. I, I really appreciated a number of years ago, it's probably been maybe 20 years ago, that, that um, Henry Blackaby put a book out, um, Experiencing God, I think was the title of it. And, he, and I think he made an excellent point in there where he says, don't try to be doing things for God, but look to where God is at work and join him. 
And so the great, great biblical, I believe, statement that he's making. So you're not trying to just go out and do things and ask God to bless your activity. But you're seeing where is God at work and simply join him, participate in what God is doing. And so if our eyes are, are open to the Lord, we are walking in the light and in fellowship with him, then we're going to be seeing what God is doing. Now, typically, that's not with a lot of fanfare. I have found that most of the time, the most significant things God is doing in the world, God is not shining a great spotlight on that. He's not, there, there aren't books being written about it. There aren't millions of people that are flocking to it. But it'll be subtle things, nonetheless, highly significant things, that God is at work. Lives are being changed. And it is undeniable if you just take the time to look not at the spectacular, sensational things, but to be looking for the activity of God, which is often not sensational. And you will see what God is doing. Having said that, we ought to be looking for what God is doing, and we ought not to stand in God's way. One illustration that you read the commentaries on this passage, and, and, and several will make reference to the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s, where so many hippies were coming to Christ. And there were churches out in California, in particular Ray Stedman's church and others where um, people that were, you know, still talk about it, and they say it was just the most amazing thing because you'd have these barefooted, long-haired hippies coming in with their, with their T-shirts and sandals and no shoes, or, or T-shirts and shorts and no shoes, and, they, and they'd be sitting next to some little old gray-haired lady with her Bible open across her lap. And, 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 and these churches, at least some of them, were just saying, come on in. And, and one guy I know, he says it just blew his mind the first time this happened that as he writes about it, he says some hippie walked in off the street, didn't know anything about church, never been to church in his life, and he just sat on the carpet right in front of the pulpit, just walked in and just sat right in front of the pulpit. And there were, and there were ushers and deacons that were wanting to get this guy, and, and the pastor said, no. And that was the beginning for their church, just a huge revival in that church as people, young people coming in off the streets and getting saved. Amazing. And praise God that those churches embraced what God was doing and didn't try to stop it or get in the way of it. Super. But we need to be, again, discerning. There, and this is where I'm about to step on another landmine. It's okay, I've been blown to pieces so many times. You can't even... Um, There are so many things that we've accepted in, a, in the church today that, we, that, that we've, become, we've begun to think that they're just right because they've gone on for so long and become so acceptable. I, many times when I do a wedding, I don't do it all the time, but many times when I've done a wedding, I've said, let me just talk about some of the symbolism that's going, taking place in a wedding that we never even think about any longer because we've become such a post-Christian culture. And I was sharing some of these things with a pastor friend just recently, and he's going, I've never heard that, never heard that. And that's okay, I'm not, you know, it's just because we, we don't stop to think. We just, we just live in this bubble, and we become more like our cultures than we really realize, and we're not necessarily being informed by Scripture. 
And I told him, as for example, the bride wearing white. That has nothing to do with her purity, with her righteousness. And we put this guilt trip on young women all the time, saying, well, you, you know, we don't do it so much anymore. We used to, saying, you don't have any business wearing white if you're not a virgin. That's just, it's a lie. Well, where does that come from? But if I look at Scripture, Scripture says the reason that a bride is dressed in white is because of the groom, not because of her purity, but because of his righteousness. He clothes her with his righteousness, and we've totally lost that. Why is it that, that there's one center aisle in a wedding, and you've got the bride's family sitting on one side and the groom's family sitting on the other? It's not just for symmetrics and make for good photos. It's because there's a picture of a covenant being formed. And on one side is one family, on the other side is the other family, and as that new husband and wife walk the aisle leaving, they're making a very powerful statement that a covenant has just been made. And just as in the Old Testament where an animal would be cut in half and you'd walk between those, those halves of the animal, you were saying, we are forming a covenant, and just as those animals died, we will die before this covenant will break. It is a lifelong commitment. And we don't even remember that anymore because we've just become such a post-Christian culture. Well, what does that got to do with, I'm talking, with this verse? Landmine coming. <laughs> women elders. Women preachers. Highly gifted women who are in ministry, standing up every Sunday and preaching, and God is using them. And we sit there and watch that and go, who am I to stand in God's way? God is working through them. Amen. I would never deny, never deny that God is working through them. But that doesn't mean that God is endorsing what's happening. Because chapter and verse of God's word says, men are elders, not women. Men are pastors, not women. And God has said, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, I believe there are very good reasons, and it's got nothing to do with competency of why God has said that. But it has to do with imaging God correctly within his body. That God, who is neither male nor female, represents himself as male when it comes to the church and to this world. And therefore, God wants the head of the church, the leadership of the church, to represent the maleness by which God represents himself. And we can go much into it if that's not the purpose of this sermon. The point is simply, if God is using a person powerfully, it is not necessarily proof that God is pleased with everything going on. God's word says his word will never return to him void. So it may simply be that God is blessing his word and not that he's endorsing the messenger. Because you can have the wrong person preaching, but they can be preaching the right thing, and people are still going to get saved. Praise God. 
That is the grace of God. It is the mercy of God. And I can go to chapter and verse again where it says God's word will not return to him void. But it doesn't make it right for us to ignore what God is saying. So we need to be careful here. Once again, Peter says, who am I to stand in the way of what God is doing? Amen. But we ought to be able to show from Scripture that what we think God is doing is actually God at work. And if we can't, then don't put that kind of stamp of approval on it. The Scripture is our authority. Verse 18, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. Now then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance which leads to life. They quieted down and they gave the amen. How can we argue with such a sound, non-emotional, reasonable, biblical response? All we can do is say, Okay. Now that's to their credit. See, this, this passage did not start out with them saying, Peter, would you please ex- explain yourself? <laughs> did you catch that? The beginning, of the, they didn't say, can you tell us what's going on here? It, it, they're, they're so mad, they, they've already made up their minds. This is a lynching. Okay? This, this is not an inquisition where they really want to know. This is a lynching. They're mad at Peter. But when it's all said and done, They've turned around and they've done a 180. This is huge because now they're in a position of saying, we can't argue with this. This is not about Peter. This is clearly about what God is doing. And all you can do is say, amen. So be it. We yield. We stop fighting. Nothing to be contentious about here. The repentance that leads to life. I don't know why they said that. Nobody does. Because Peter never preached repentance. When Peter gave his message, there was not a single word about repentance. Nothing. He never mentioned repentance. And Cornelius is never said to have repented. There's nothing in Cornelius' response where he says, I repent of my sins. So maybe that took place in his heart as they were listening to Peter Maybe it took place before Peter ever arrived because he's a God-fearing man who's seeking to know the Lord and he's seeking after God. We don't know. But this is what we do know, is that repentance is a gift from God. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that God gives the gift of repentance only to some. In fact, that's being corrected in their minds because they're thinking, the Jewish people here are thinking, God gives repentance only to some. And now we know God is giving the gift of repentance to everybody. So if we were right before, and and I don't know that they were, we are certainly wrong to think that that is continuing. God is giving the gift of repentance to everybody. But repentance and salvation are not the same thing. And so because we aren't saved because we've repented. We are saved because we place our faith in Christ. And so as we read through Acts, there's going to be several occasions where, where, where a person, Peter or Paul, will introduce the subject of salvation, like with the Philippian jailer, and Paul's going to, he says, how can I be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Not a word saying that you have to repent. Now, I believe, again, that repentance is important. But it is, you can repent of your sin and not place your faith in Christ. 
going back to Nineveh. They repented of their sins. But how many people in Nineveh were saved? Very few, if any. So So those are two separate things. But repentance ought to lead to life. I have a person um, I know very well. He went to a crusade um, many years ago and, and um, had a very emotional experience, seemed to be convicted of his sin, seemed to repent of his sin. But I don't know that that man would ever say that he actually placed his faith in Christ and became a child of God. Repentance ought to lead to life. But repenting and salvation are not necessarily one and the same. Now, again, I started out by saying Peter was not ignorant. He wasn't stupid. He knew when he went to Cornelius, it was going to create all kinds of problems. And these Jewish Christian elders, in giving their amen to what God has done, they're not ignorant. And they're not stupid. And they know that by them not coming down on Peter, by not censoring what Peter did, they also are creating a big problem. Keep in mind that up until this time, it's been 10 years now since the church has started. The church in Jerusalem is still identifying with the temple. They're going to the temple every Sabbath day. They're they're observing all the Jewish feasts. They don't see any distinction between Judaism and faith in Christ. And there is. So now, these Jewish elders, Christians, who are going to the temple all the time and praying and continuing to identify with the temple, even though Stephen said it's not about the temple, But they're still practicing their their Judaism as faithful Jews. And now these faithful Jews have just said what Peter did with Cornelius and eating with the Gentiles is not a problem. And they've just created an earthquake. The Grand Canyon has just opened up between these faithful Christian Jews and and the people, the Jewish community that has not put their faith in Christ. This is monumental. Them saying yes to what God has done through Peter makes a huge canyon between the church and Judaism. Because Judaism, in their minds, is absolutely distinct from the Gentiles. I don't think they're understanding the Old Testament scriptures correctly with that. But nonetheless, that's the way they're thinking, and these Jerusalem elders knew it. And so by saying, we're okay, Peter, with what you've done, they've now put themselves at odds with the community that they're living in. This is huge. Now there was already some open hostility, but in in the whole they had great favor. Acts keeps saying the church enjoyed great favor in Israel. That's now stopping. Because they were having great favor as long as they were still being faithful Jews. And Jews see a distinction between Jew and Gentile. And now these Jews are saying there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And they have immediately 
have made themselves suspect within the communities that they're a part of. This was no small thing. A wedge is forced between these new church-age believers and the Jerusalem and the Judaism that they lived within. These Jerusalem elders knew their acceptance of Cornelius and that event would not be received well by those committed to the preservation of Judaism. And yet, the elders chose to yield to God and not to the fear of men. The temple worshipers wanted one thing, and God was clearly doing something else. They wanted the preservation of Judaism, and God's saying, it's never been about preserving Judaism. It's been about the glory of God filling the earth, using Israel. But it's never been that Israel would be the end all. Focused, Israel is, is, is very much in focus throughout God's plan for mankind. But they are not the end all. The glory of God filling the earth is the main thing. These elders understood that just as Peter could not stand in God's way, no matter the consequence, neither could the elders stand in God's way, no matter what the consequence. This decision by Peter and the elders would have increased the persecution by the Jews against the church. And in fact, it did. Because no longer can any reasonable person say that Christians are just like us and we are just like them, as far as the outward religion goes. Nobody can say that. They should have, been, should have been stopping that with what Stephen said, but there's still this close association. That's coming to an end. This decision on the part of the elders removes the favor formerly held by the church. And this decision crystallizes the separation, the separate identity between church and Israel. Because see, these elders are not siding with Israel. They're siding with God and His Word. Neither party can any longer see themselves as being one with the other. And let me just put it in one final word. From this point on, it is clear Israel is not the church. And the church is not Israel. And I am not speaking against Israel. I love Israel. And I believe God has a very clear plan yet for Israel in the future. And I believe that the nation of Israel is still God's chosen nation on this earth. But in Acts 11, we are seeing the early Jewish church. The early Jewish church. The elders in Jerusalem are saying, this is not about Judaism anymore. This is about what God is doing in making two distinct people one. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. Just as God never intended to raise up Israel so as to make all the world Jewish, when we place our faith in Christ, it does not make us Jewish. There are a lot of Christians today who think that they need to go back to Judaism even though they are born Gentile. 
There is not a word in the Bible that says that when you place your faith in Christ, you become Israel or you become Jewish. You do become a son and daughter of Abraham. Abraham, to be technical, was not of Israel. He became the father of Israel, but he was not an Israelite. We become sons and daughters of Abraham, but there's not a word in the Bible that says we become Jewish. God never intended for the world to become Jews. He does intend for the world to know him, to walk with him, and that all the nations of the earth would bow before him in free confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is what he is after. And it glorifies God when there are distinct nations, races, ethnicities that are not made that the, those distinctions are not obliterated, they're maintained, and yet we are now one. So you have unity with diversity. And that's what God is after. He doesn't mind the diversity. He wants unity in the midst of the diversity. And that's what these men are seeing. God has made the two one. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you that we've been made one with all those who place their faith in Christ. It is a, a bond that is greater than, than blood because it is based on the blood of Christ, not the blood of our birth physically. I thank you, God, that not only have we been made one with all those who place their faith in Christ, but we are made one with you, the greatest oneness that there is. We praise you and thank you, God, with humble hearts for the unity that you've given us with yourself that you will never leave us, never forsake us. I thank you, God, that you see us as unique and you haven't saved us as to blend us to where there's no longer any distinction between male and female or any distinction between Jew and Gentile in terms that those things are not even existing. But I thank you that none of those distinctions keep us from you, that we all have equal access to you while being absolutely unique before you. Thank you, God, for the work that you are doing in this world. And I pray that we would have eyes to see you at work. And we wouldn't just hear the bad news, Lord, and there's so much of it, but that we would go to your word and look to what you are doing and that we would walk so humbly with you, God, that no matter how strong the experiences may be, that we would always let your word have authority over our lives no matter how enculturated we become, no matter how right our traditions and practices may be, that we be willing, God, to be corrected, to be humbled, to be admonished, God, by your word, and that we would bow before you in the authority, God, that you have over us. Thank you that you've not left us without instruction for your word, for the ministry of your spirit, and that you always lead us into what is true and right and good. In Christ's name, amen.